to Healing Black Futures, a podcast envisioning Black liberation and healing through economic justice. This podcast is brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com. I am your host, Asia Dorsey. Episode five, reparations and financial justice. If we open our eyes, there are more than enough places to direct your capital where it is obvious that harm is being done. Imagine if we were to direct our political passions and spending to those who are clear about their support for specific legislation and policies that actually benefit the poorest among us. And challenge ourselves around, I am a fiscal conservative. What does that mean? To be more moved by retaining tax cuts than you are moved by redistribution of capital to the poorest among us, right? So that's the real challenge of the soul. Financial justice is an important element of the movement for reparations, given this country's history of slavery and many years of Black codes and Jim Crow laws, which effectively blocked Black economic progress for generations. As a result, Black wealth is now just one-tenth that of white. Now, Financial market advisors are developing reparative strategies to heal our capital markets of these structural inequalities. Repairing what's broken requires both an understanding of current finance, banking, and credit policy, as well as a grounding and an Afrofuturistic vision of what's possible. Our guest today is Enith Williams, founder and managing director of the Reparations Finance Lab. The Reparations Finance Lab is a financial services nonprofit that seeks to engage capital markets to design innovative financial products and processes that will deliver reparative capital to the descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. Welcome, Ina, to Healing Black Futures. Thank you so much for having me. And I love the title of the podcast. I love the possibility, the healing, and the fact that we're looking forward to healthy futures. So it's really, really great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. And, you know, before we dive into your work with Reparations Finance Lab, how would you define financial justice? And how does financial justice relate to the idea of reparations? I am a former banker, and I came to the world of banking as a grown-up, out of college, I had a long career in community development, government. And by the time I got to the private capital markets and banking, I had a good sense of just how capital worked or didn't work for different communities. And what struck me and probably laid the foundation for this work is how I am clear that what I am not looking for is an that everyone should have the same, right? So we're not looking for the equality of outcomes. You know, it's not one cow for each family or whatever. But what struck me and what has stayed with me through my own personal growth and development as an immigrant to this country and sort of climbing that ladder of economic growth within my own family and within my own self, and then also working in the market and with capital, whether it's public or private or philanthropic, is how uneven the 
rewards fall on the communities that are part of the ecosystem. And so by the time I got to be a banker, it was a very deliberate decision on my part to be close to the most rewarded part of the market, right? And it was frankly because I was new, you know, as a single mother by then, I was divorced and I had two children. I was like, I need to make as much money as I am able to with my skill set. And so you get into private banking. And yet still the work I did there is hard as it was and as demanding was not as was no more demanding than the work I did as a community worker working with low-income families or working even for central government you know working in government policy I worked as many hours you know tried to impact as as many people and yet still the reward differential was so great and so for me financial justice would be that the rewards from work, from, from labor, whether it's physical or intellectual, spiritual, is rewarded at a commensurate rate to, to really honor those who have provided that input and those who have worked for it. And that for me would be where the justice would be. Thank you. And how do you see that financial justice in relationship to reparations? You mentioned the way that our system divvies reward unequally and that you yourself decided to move towards the most rewarded part of the market, which is finance. And so how do you see reparations playing a role in equivocating this reward differential that you mentioned? So I think reparations and financial reparations in particular, because as you know, the idea of reparations has within the healing of many harms right? But the financial part of the harm is foundational to the history of African people in the diaspora, which includes the United States, the Caribbean, where I'm from, Central America, all the way into South America, which is that the African people who were enslaved and provided the physical labor to develop the new world never got to share in the rewards of that new world for the 260 years of bondage in the US, um, 200 plus years in the Caribbean, we were not paid a salary. To think about what the, the monumental harm of generations of families, individuals working without being compensated within a system that did compensate labor, right? So it was a system that you know, we can go into history and just, you know, all of the exploitation of the poor that happened and the, un, you know, the inequities with feudal systems, all of that, people were rewarded. But Black folk as a caste system, right, and as a group had no financial skin in the game. And this was for generations and generations. So you were not able to accumulate in the ways that other families did, pots of money to purchase a small plot of land, to erect a small home, to grow your family, that was denied you. And so for the great majority, I would say 99% of Black folks, there's never that generational stepping stone where even starting from ground zero, you were able to build. We just remained at ground zero. The idea of financial reparations is we provided the labor and even when you consider how 
inequity and injustices occurred in that system for all labor. Because remember, you know, the working class whites wasn't even that they were, you know, remarkably better rewarded, but they were rewarded. So even in that unjust, oppressed system, we were even more oppressed. And so reparations is demanding that that is recognized and that we are rewarded. Yes, thank you. And thank you for your framing of of reparations, not just for all of the harm that came to the physical bodies, but literally you're just saying bare bones, there's no payback. (laughs) Like like everyone else at least received compensation, even if it was unfair, but there was no compensation. There was no return. And so thank you for bringing us back to that. And so the Reparations Finance Lab seeks to design innovative financial products and processes that will deliver reparative capital to the descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. How did you decide to found the lab and what were your goals for the programs and what does success look like? Mm. Coming to the lab, I actually was engaged with 17 Asset Management, which is the firm where we're sort of being incubated putting together an investment thesis for the Caribbean. 17 Asset Management is an impact investment firm, and we're looking at what would it look like to have an investment fund that is structured around solving some of the problems in the Caribbean. And because I have lived back and forth between the U.S. and Jamaica, which is where I was born, and where I still live part of the year, they said, help us to understand the region. And as I got into the into the work of just figuring out what does Jamaica need, what would catalytic capital look like that was not official, you know, government assistance, it wouldn't be World Bank funds, it would be just pure capital markets, private capital, where would it have the, the most impact? And so you start there, but you go back and you start to look at the systems and two of the biggest challenges facing the region was the challenge of climate and food security and and energy. Where do you enter? If you've identified climate, food security, energy, where would your investment have the biggest bang for the buck, the most structural systems change? And you start to pull back and you look at the institutional frame and the development of the countries. And you began to realize that, hmm, even with a lot of money, there was such structural weakness that had developed historically from the system of enslavement, colonialism, that it would, you'd have to actually build those institutions up, just the ability to run projects, to design projects, to deploy capital, to have the markets that could actually absorb the capital. And so it very quickly became clear that the work was more than just get money in, throw it in. There was a systems problem. Right. And whilst you could do very successful small projects, you can have discrete impact. The overall system and the overall structure of how the societies have developed over the years almost guarantee that you will not have the flow through to the bottom of the society, to those who are really, really have historically been left out, who are 
really the ones that have the, the biggest need because the structure in the system is just designed and has gotten itself mummified in that position. And so then I started to think, so what would it take to really shake that bottom of the pyramid? I remember this wonderful Indian economist speaking about the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. And I read the book years ago and I said, so what would it look like if we were to get investment ideas around food security, around energy, and also ideas around climate resilience that really supported the bottom of the pyramid. And it became very clear to me that in asking that question, I was asking a systems question and I was asking an institutional question and that it was it would require more than just discreetly successful projects. It would require a real restructuring And then once you start to think about, well, we need to restructure, then your question is, but what is the system, right? Because as a banker, you look at each society or each opportunity very clear-eyed. I'm going to deploy X capital, you know, do my modeling and I'll get this return. Now I'm looking to get a different return and have a different impact, which is the social impact, which is the, for me, a generational impact, a transformative impact, John Morris who founded 17, and we started to have this conversation about what is the possibility for capital that had such a definitive role in creating the unjust system. So how do you reimagine and redeploy capital? And so the reparations finance lab and the lab part is very deliberate. It speaks about not going in with answers, but going in with questions and ideas and trying to figure out what is the system that has continued to develop and deliver wealth at the top and unequal outcomes for the bottom, which is predominantly Black people. Mm. There's so much that you shared that stirred up a lot in me in particular. You spoke about your work in, in Jamaica and the Caribbean and how that helped you understand that there were structural weaknesses that would not allow capital to flow outside of the structures that had already been created. And those structures were inherently extractive. I'm there with you doing that that work, trying to figure out how to develop these new markets, make the markets more active and even accessible and even workable, right? When right. the template for those markets was enslavement. And so that structure you named the triangle, the pyramid is still at play. And especially this idea of the, the pyramid being mummified as we, we talk about caste systems and even mm-hmm. when we go back to Egypt, right? Like- mm-hmm. There is a mummification of structural inequality and it plays out in Mm -hmm. not only our response to climate change, but our response to Mm -hmm. COVID-19. The harms Mm -hmm. in this country, they the water trickled the way that the water was set up to trickle. And the harm happened the way that it happened 400 years ago. And so I'm really curious about your work, working specifically in capital when we know that capitalism Mm-hmm. The system is by nature extractive and that yes. it 
is the basis for our economy and our financial markets. And so I guess my question for you, um, because I see you in your lab coat, you know, I see you going in with questions. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm curious speaking to you from that place of how do we modify these existing financial structures so that they are even compatible with the concept of reparation if the structure is shaped like a pyramid? Yes, so that's a hard one. And so the lab is just a little bit over a year old. So really, you know, burning the midnight oil in the lab. And I have been fortunate to have folk who have expertise in very discrete areas of capital deployment, like real estate, right? And investment funds. So if we were to have a different model for affordable housing and, and, and we locate housing within the framework of real community, how do we look at communities that have a long history of harm, everything from redlining to restrictive covenants, to just absolute denial of capital, but which managed to survive, how could you get capital into those communities? And so the question we ask ourselves is, is there a model to repair? It's almost like in construction, you want to bring a building up to code. What would you fix, right? The other piece of what, what we're wrestling with is, can we hope to undo the past 500 years, no matter with all the best intentions in the world? without something dramatically different happening. And my humility is growing to say, if we're not careful, we'll all be tinkering at the edges and we'll still have that mummified system remain. Yeah. I'll tell you, one of the reparations economists that I, I really follow for his methodology is Professor William Darty from Duke University. You know, he says, look, if we continue at the rate we are now with the black white wealth gap, we're gonna close that in maybe a hundred years. But it's not even getting to parity, it's just that we would not be one eighth, we would maybe two bars away from the top line. I try everything I can to live a good, healthy life, but I don't think I have a hundred years left. I'm always quoting these books and it's only because I'm a frustrated scholar. I just finished reading Thomas Piketty's A Brief History of Equality. And he's gotten extremely, I don't want to say radical, but just considering the same question, he basically said, you know what? We need to just start over, <laughs> right? Rebuild the system and echoed what Darty has said, which is we need to actually have direct cash transfers. The only way you're going to make it up is you got to give people capital. Wow. I, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just got chills, you know, because you, you took all these big books. We, we know how big capital was. It's bigger than me. <laughs> and, and then you distilled it to like, we just have to transfer funds. I, just have I to transfer wanted, funds. I wanted to bring in that the Afro pessimist <laughs> perspective is that there is no way to undo the 400 years of harm up to 500, 250 in the Caribbean. Yeah. And that the only hope there is for Black and Indigenous people is that the whole system has to be turned on its head. You know, the way we are going with this planet, we may all be forced to put our sacks on our back and move to planet Xenon. I mean, you know, we are destroying the planet. So, but I'm not a pessimist, I'm an optimist. I there think we go. 
Yeah, my optimism comes from being an immigrant because my parents mm -hmm. packed up their little suitcases and came to America with a dream and a dollar, you know, sold a donkey, whatever they did, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not be optimistic? They gave up one life with hopes for another. So that's in my soul, that's in my being. But my optimism says, at some point, there's gotta be a reckoning. There are people of goodwill who want a different outcome mm -hmm. for this country. Mm -hmm. And it's those people who are going to create the difference. And those people across all the sectors, there's this quiet movement happening where people are beginning to imagine a new future. So even as we are distracted by the noisemakers and the flamethrowers, there are people who are sincerely looking at the systems of the planet and recognizing that the system that has this pyramid with the two or three trillionaires at the top is just unsustainable, it's unjust. Yeah. I feel deeply that the system is crumbling from within. There are too many points of tension and I feel the pain of being black, but there are many groups who feel pain because of the system. They're so, you know, I look at my indigenous brothers and sisters and their pain. At some point, how much pain are you going to pile on to keep the system going? So my optimism is within itself, the system has sown its own seed of its own destruction. And I truly, truly believe that. You're listening to Healing Black Futures. We will continue our discussion on reparations and financial justice with Enith Williams, founder and managing director of the Reparations Finance Lab, in just a moment. All the chills, you know, <laughs> all the all the chills. And I love that that vision of it crumbling from the inside and all the pressure points and all of the the recognition that it's not working and it's that this working. triangle that oppresses Africans is also oppressing Asians and indigenous and it's, white. It and is. Mm -hmm. We're sitting here with this idea of the reckoning. This is the part in the podcast where we go to what has happened post-reckoning, okay? <laughs> so in, in this liberated future, all right? Will you walk us through this landscape of the Afro future where the goals of financial sovereignty and reparations have been met? So the mother of earth exhales and Black people are able to walk through mother earth unencumbered it is spiritual wholeness. It is, it's how I feel when I am in Treasure Beach in Jamaica where I may or may not have on shoes and I'll just pick something off the tree and something really good is being cooked in the kitchen and I have not a worry in the world and the person I encounter on the street will be friendly. I know they will be friendly. I will not have to go into my protective stance. I will not have to get into a defensive stance. I'm free. 
before I really got serious about this work, one of the reasons why I've centered my work on capital and on finance is I've said, you know, because slavery and colonialism were capitalistic enterprises, until white people pay black people money, they will not respect black people because we accord people respect based on where they fit into the things we value. And the capitalist system values capital. And to the extent that we do not have it and we do not have the ability as a group to extract that capital from the world until we get to that point where we are acknowledged that we have contributed to the wealth of the world and paid that recognition that comes from the capitalist system, not from your humanity, because that should go without saying, right? I should be recognized and respected because I'm a human being, I'm a fellow human, but that's not where we are. Where we are, we have a very specific legacy that we're struggling with, and it's a legacy of a capital construct. And within that system, we were without value to ourselves. So until we can get value given to us by the system, we will struggle in the system. So I'm saying two things. Do we break the system? That's a big lift. But I think getting reparations, which is an acknowledgement that we are due pay, will move that needle. Okay, so so we are in the liberated future. You just articulated how important it is to be recognized by the system to have our humanity recognized. You also shared your vision of your liberated future. It was both communal such Mm -hmm. that there was safety and security. You said the next person I meet is going to be friendly and I just know it. And it was also embodied like the earth is breathing a sigh of relief, like there is ease and flow in your body. And so from this place of the liberated future, I want to interview you. This is a little cognitively complex because (laughs) me and you are in the future and I'm interviewing you. Black people have gotten the recognition from capital Mm -hmm. that you described. Mm -hmm. So my question for you, and I want us to get real, (laughs) real precise, because I know you got your lab coat. What are the policies that changed? What are the structures that shifted? Like, how did we get recognition from capital? So here we are in this future and we no longer check a box about race. It is self-evident because of who I am, but it has lost its negative meaning. I no longer am bound geographically. I no longer represent to say I'm Jamaican, I'm American. I'm a citizen of the planet. I am able to travel where my soul feels at home. I can live anywhere that my soul is at peace. So my question for you though is, How did we get there? We no longer accumulate for the sake of accumulating. We actually begin to think that zillionaires are gross and we shame them. We put them in the the village square and say, why are you hoarding a trillion dollars? You are gross. (laughs) What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Why are you not sharing? Why are you locked up in your little house counting your pennies when outside there's freedom, there's grass, there's earth, there are people. And so we're no longer 
valorizing the wealth. So we have reoriented our system of priorities and then we start to act externally and extend to every person we meet what we wish for ourselves. Thank you. And thank you for naming the specific shifts in valuation. Even that idea that there was a village square where we shamed the wealthy. What is wrong with you? Why are you hoarding? Okay, yeah. so let's let's close out this future portal. So, mm-hmm. you know, we we traveling back to the present. Yeah. And now we're back. You're in New York and I'm in Colorado. And as two people who have just experienced this amazing, healed Black future, what are the steps that we can take right now to support the creation of this future? Do you have specific advice for white people, especially those with access to financial resources, wishing to walk this path of repair? I think my specific advice to white people who wish to walk the path is, first of all, to learn the past, to be open to hearing truths that make you uncomfortable, to be willing to let go of the position that white people have held for a very long time at the top of the pyramid. We're not trying to recreate the pyramid with black folk at the top, right? We're actually trying to destroy the pyramid, right? As I said, not equal outcomes, but equalized. I want to say for white people who are desirous of a change, who feel that stirring in their heart, the most important thing they can do is make the change themselves and talk to their friends and neighbors. Because all movements, all evangelizing is one person to the other. And so if a white person has felt the stirring of their heart and the call to racial justice, the most important thing you can do beyond making very specific financial donations, which is one thing, is be an evangelist. Speak it wherever you are, with whomever, and be prepared to withstand whatever comes, but just speak that truth. There are so many parts in sort of this interview where you emphasize the importance of relationship and relationship and community. And I really hear you speaking that now is is that if your heart is stirred, Mm -hmm. you know, then speak that stirring, speak that truth in a way that it moves and shapes relationship. You also mentioned specifically make sort of specific financial contributions. How would white folks know where to direct those contributions? I know this is what you're working on exactly (laughs) with your catalytic capital. We, we are reparations finance lab. We are a nonprofit. We are sponsored by fiscal sponsor, humanitarian social innovation. So we Mm. are open for donations, but beyond that, I think, again, just going back to relationship, you know, each of us in our communities, if we open our eyes, there are more than enough places to direct your capital where it is obvious that harm is being done. Imagine if we were to elect our political representatives who would really invest in families, if we were to direct our political 
passions and spending to those who are clear about their support for specific legislation and policies that actually benefit the poorest among us, mm -hmm. right? And challenge ourselves around, I am a fiscal conservative. What does that mean? What does it mean to be more moved by retaining tax cuts than you are moved by redistribution of capital to the poorest among us, right? So that's the real challenge of the soul. We, we have created the system, each one of us, by buying into the various levers of it. The most important thing each of us can do that feel a stern is to dismantle our contribution to that. Yeah. And many of us will be voting. It would behoove all of us to take a moment to go beyond the labels and beyond the easy answer, say, which of these candidates are supporting policies that will support humanity? That is healthcare for all, right? That is enough financial support for those who are struggling. So do we have a universal basic income? That is actually being comfortable with all of the poor people among us getting a check from the government and not calling it a handout. Right. It's not a handout. It is us being stewards of the earth and sharing. It is sharing. So for me, it's be targeted with your giving, but also really drill down into how a lot of us say one thing, do the other. And sometimes it seems as if the twain will never meet. Mm, thank you for that response. So we are, we are coming to our final question. I want to thank you so much, Ms. Enith Williams, for your sharing and your generosity of both imagination and lived experience and knowledge in these, and asking these beautiful questions and creating the reparations finance lab so that we can test these questions and empirically start to interrogate how we can reshape the pyramid. Thank you for these investigations and interrogations. And our last question is, is there anything of importance that I have not asked you? And what would you like to leave in the hearts and minds of our listeners today? <laughs> I think the one thing I would say, and it goes back to my, my foundation, you know, I grew up in a village, a small, small, tiny village. And that's where I get my appreciation for relationships and also a very firm grounding in the arc of life. And the arc of life is truly to do unto others as you would do for yourself. But even more importantly, is that at every step of the way, do as much good as you can. And it's not all about you. It's, it's about your fellow um, villagers in my case, but also I have just taken that to the world. I truly see myself as just one person in this 9 billion people, but I know I'm no more important than any of the other 9 billion people. And that's a humility that fills me not with sadness, but with joy because I'm part of a beautiful tapestry and I don't take myself too seriously. Thank you so much, Enith Williams. We so appreciate you joining us and, and gathering with us to have these crucial conversations about reparations and the reparations at the intersection of financial justice. Thank you again, and we will be in touch with you soon. Thank you, Asia. Just really appreciate the work that you do at Reparations for Slavery, and I dream of the future we will all create together for myself and more importantly for my children and the children of the world.
Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. This interview with Enith Williams, founder and managing director of the Reparations Finance Lab, was conducted by Asia Dorsey and produced by Lottie Lee Dula for reparationsforslavery.com. You can find more information on the web at reparationsfinancelab.org. Thank you. You've been listening to Healing Black Futures, a podcast envisioning Black liberation and healing through economic justice. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com. I'm your host, Asia Dorsey.